welcome to the Serviced Accommodation Property Podcast. This podcast by Kevin Paneskis, also known as the Property Soldier, covers all aspects of serviced accommodation and how to make it a profitable and sustainable business. Kevin started investing in property in 1991 whilst serving in the British Army and now owns a multi-million pound property portfolio and serviced accommodation business and is a best-selling author. And now your host, Kevin Paneskis. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Service Combination Property Podcast. Today our speaker is Tina Walsh and Tina is going to be uh, giving her expert advice on deal packaging or sourcing compliance. There's not a lot of people out there doing this, but are they doing it right? Those, those of you that are interested in uh, getting into this area, this should be really useful uh, content for you. So I'm going to get Tina up onto the stage and get a massive round of applause for Tina Walsh. Hi everyone, thank you for the great welcome and thank you to Kevin for the invitation to come and chat with you guys today. My passion is property sourcing and everything compliance related around it, but that wasn't where I started out. So before I start talking about property sourcing and the compliance bit, just a little bit of background on me for those of you that don't know me. I started out when I left school as a police officer believe it or not, and I served in the police force for 14 years plus, but I was injured on duty and had to leave, and that hadn't been the plan, so I was stuck as to what I wanted to do. So I went back to college and did some studying around computers, project management, database design and development, and all of that sort of thing, and ended up accidentally falling into the healthcare sector through my sister-in-law and her business. Stayed in the healthcare sector for a little while. She sold the business to a big corporate, which I'm unemployable now. And I think a lot of people say that they've been self-employed for a while because I am unemployable now. So the big corporate world wasn't for me. And I think I lasted six months. And then it was me out of the door. But what I did then, the guys that had developed the management system for the healthcare sector that I was in asked me Because I knew healthcare and how to design and build the systems, I was a great linkage for them going out and doing the um, introductions, the demos, and teaching new companies that came on board how to use a system. So I did that for a few years. Whilst I was doing that, I'd always wanted to start my own business. And my husband, Tony, was still in the police force. Uh, He recently retired after doing 30 years in the police force. But we'd always wanted a business that we could work on together because despite Tony retiring from the police force, we still consider ourselves to be quite young and we didn't want to retire from life. So we wanted something that we could do. And originally in 2005, we invested in property ourselves. Uh, There were no courses around that we knew of back then that we were aware of. And the idea that we had was fantastic, was to invest in buy-to-let property to gain extra income for ourselves. And we purchased two properties. But we made every rookie mistake you could think of that was ever been written about. We bought it off plan, brand spanking new from a local builder. And it was 2005. And by the time it was built, it was 2006, and then we hit the crash 2007, 2008. So whilst we managed to rent out the three-bedroom apartment, we had to move into the four-bedroom townhouse. We had to live there 11 years, and after 11 years had passed, we still only made 85,000 profit on the property. So you can tell 
how much we paid for it in relation to how steep the drop was where we lived. So that was quite a painful experience for us. So we didn't really want to invest in property again, but we really wanted to start a business. So I was chatting to a guy that was in the property sector and he said to me, OK, you don't want to invest in property yourself, Tina. How about deal packaging? And my comment was, what is that? And he said, go and research it. And that was where I started in January 2012. And I went off and I researched. And because of my police background, I researched the legislation and the regulation and the legalities around running a deal packaging sourcing business. And for the first 10 months, I networked to build up a network of investors and built the compliance into the business. And that was seven and a half years ago, and we are still running our sourcing business now. What I realized very early on was the fact that no one really talked about the compliance side around deal packaging and compliance. No one really talked about it or mentioned that it was like a dark little secret in the back corner. And I didn't like that idea, so I decided to do something about it. So I wrote a book called Property Sourcing Compliance, Keeping You on the Right Side of the Law. And that was my, my end goal. That was the book. I wanted to tell everybody about compliance, and I thought that was it. But then someone said to me, Tina, you need to go out and you need to tell people about it. You need to speak to people. Because I was then getting investors coming to me and talking to me about how they had lost a lot of cash from using sourcing agents from deals that didn't match the criteria that they'd set, or they had handed over a deposit or a reservation fee that they then couldn't get back. So I thought, well, maybe, just maybe, I need to go out on the presentation circuit and start to educate both sources as to what they should be doing and investors as to what they should be looking for for a compliant sourcer. So today, what I'm going to take you through is a little bit for the sourcing and deal packaging agents in the room and a little bit for the investors. So we're going to take the sources through the first four or five steps on the road to compliance and what you have to do. And then we're going to go through some of the questions that as an investor, if you want to work with a sourcer, you really need to be asking to ensure that the person that you are working with is safe. And if anything does go wrong, you are at least protected to a certain extent. So that's where we're going to start now. So from a sourcing perspective, let's say that you set up your business, you've got a bank account. The next step that you will need is insurance. And it's a particular type of insurance called professional indemnity insurance or PI insurance. And you will need a minimum of 100,000 pounds before you can go on to stage two, which I'll talk about in a minute. Now, professional indemnity insurance covers you for your professional services. So if your services fall short of what is expected by your client and they take you to court, it's your PI, professional indemnity insurance, that will cover you against any losses, fines, etc. So that is what you need to have. What you need to be aware of as deal packages is that not all independent insurance brokers understand what property sourcing is. And if you go in and you tell them that you operate similar to an estate agent, they might put you on an off-the-peg estate agency policy, which, if anything went wrong, wouldn't cover you. 
because the people who fund the insurance companies, the funders in the background, perceive deal packaging and sourcing as higher risk than a state agency. So please, before you go and get your insurance, ensure that you're working with an insurance broker who understands the sector and has a bespoke policy for property sourcing. So you've got your property sourcing insurance. The next step is to register with one of two ombudsmen. Now, there are two available at this moment in time. The first one is the property ombudsman or TPO. The second one is Property Redress Scheme, or PRS. The oldest of the two is a TPO. It is a not-for-profit organisation and is the one that I'm a member of simply because when I started, it was the only one that I could join. It was the only one that there was. PRS is a much more modern entity and is run by property professionals for profit. Other than that, the services that they provide are very similar, and I'm assured by national trading standards that whatever the TPO do, the PRS follow. So basically, just have a look at the sites, see what the information is like, see which one with your gut feeling feels better for you, and join whichever one you prefer, because it really doesn't make that much difference. Once you've joined the ombudsman, the third step is to register for data protection supervision. And you do that with the ICO, or Information Commissioner's Office. Now, the reason that you have to register for data protection supervision is because as property sources, we gather a huge amount of data on our clients. So when you're working with an investor, in order to complete the due diligence processes that you must do, you're going to hold a lot of specific information on them and possibly copies of identity documents, bank statements, national insurance number, date of birth, and sources of funds, so on and so forth. So you must register for data protection supervision to do that. The fourth step after that is to register for anti-money laundering supervision, and that is done with HMRC. Now, HMRC have been in charge of the money laundering sector since April 2014. They took over from the Information Commissioner's Office who just do data protection now. And you must register with HMRC for AML supervision. Now, there's, those are the first four stages. And in total, dependent on who you get your insurance from and how much insurance cover you get... On first registration, if there is one of you on one business premises, allocate about £1,200 cost. That's how much it will cost you for those registrations. Now, all of this above are the registrations. But as anyone will know, if they've worked in any other professional industry, such as finance or healthcare, registering for supervision of something isn't the end of compliance. It is just the beginning because there are codes of conduct to follow for your ombudsman. There are minimum standards required for both money laundering and data protection. And you must be aware of about the other 12 or so pieces of regulation and legislation that actually govern as a whole what we do. You must have a good understanding. For argument's sake, consumer protection regulations are one of them. Electronic communications protections regulations, so on and so forth. So those are your first four steps but they literally are the tip of the iceberg of compliance.
literally the tip of the iceberg because below all of that are your minimum standards, your policies, your procedures, your risk assessments, ongoing monitoring, training provision. And all of this must be written and must be provable that you are operating as such to the standards within your business. Now, that is the property sources side of it, I suppose you could say. So as an investor, if you're going to work with a property sourcer, what sort of questions should you be asking? Well, firstly, do they have professional indemnity insurance? How much cover have they got? Remember, the minimum required is £100,000. But if you're sourcing having a development site worth multi-million pounds source for you, is £100,000 of PI insurance going to cover it? Probably not. So dependent on the kind of deal that you're looking to source through your sourcer, check the level of insurance that they've got and ask for a copy of their certificate. That's question one that you should be asking. Question two is, are they registered with an ombudsman? Because by law, they must be. And every time anyone registers, they get an independent registration number that is theirs and theirs alone. And they should be able to provide that number for you. Are they registered for data protection supervision? Again, when you register, you get an independent registration number from the Information Commissioner's Office that is yours and yours alone. And last but not least, HMRC and anti-money laundering. Have they registered? Can you have their registration number? Now, for each of those registration numbers, you can go on the relative sites, put in the registration number, their name, company name, and check that they are actually registered. Because believe it or not, some people tell lies. They pretend that they are, or they think if they say that they are and they give you a false number that you'll believe them. Don't take it as being truth. Please do your due diligence on them. And the reason that as investors, you really, really want them to be registered with an ombudsman is the fact that if something goes wrong with a deal that you have sourced through a sourcing agent and you've handed over a reservation for your deposit or something has gone wrong and it has cost you cash, if they aren't registered with an ombudsman, the only place that you can go for redress is a small claims court in this country. And at the moment, the most that you can take them to court for is £10,000. Now, the last time I checked, that doesn't really cover much of a property deal, even in my area in the northwest, never mind in the south. So check that they are a member of the ombudsman. But key to the ombudsman code of conduct is the fact that they are supposed to have an in-house complaints process. And this in-house complaints process is what you should be taken through if you make a complaint. And it is supposed to be no more than eight weeks long, and it's split out into three stages. And at each stage, so um, you make an initial complaint, and the sourcer inquires as to your uh, complaint, investigates it, and then comes back and gives you feedback as to what their thoughts are. If you're happy, then that's absolutely fine. If you're not, then you can ask them to escalate it and do a higher level um, inquiry into your complaint. If at the end of that you're not happy, at that point, you can then take your complaint to their ombudsman and the ombudsman will listen to your complaint. And under the code of conduct, the sourcing agent must abide by the decision made by the ombudsman 
or they can be taken away, they can have their membership taken away, and in which case they will be operating illegally anyway. So it's key that you check that they have an in-house complaints procedure. Why would it be of interest to you as an investor that they're registered for data protection? How many of us hand over personal data to someone and we don't know what they're doing with it? Most sources work from home, from a dining room, from a bedroom, from a small office at home. That's all that they have. If you're handing them your personal data, copies of your driving license, passport, bank statements, personal information, what are they doing with it? Where are they keeping it? Because that sourcing agent should be treating that information that they've gathered from you with the same respect that they would treat any information that they would dish out to someone who asked for it. And that is the reason why you need to check that they are supervised by data protection. Because you deserve to know where your data is going to be held. And also, if you want access to it now legally, you can ask for copies of everything that is held on you. Do they have the capacity to be able to do that for you? You also have the right to be forgotten, as it is called now, or deleted, subject to certain other criteria. Now, the last one on the list, antimony laundering. Why is antimony laundering so important? In this country, antimony laundering is kind of policed at the top level by the National Crime Agency, or NCA. And annually-ish, they issue reports. And their last report issued, they guesstimated that 100 billion, with a B, pounds, is laundered through the UK alone every year. And a lot of that is laundered through property because it is a great, great vehicle for laundering cash. So how do people launder cash through property? Well, there are a few ways. One of them is that they could purchase the property cash, not do any work on it, and then three or four months later, put it back up for sale again with an unsuspecting agent, ask a little bit less for it due to circumstances, and ask that it's a cash buyer for a fast sale, and wash the cash, clean it. What they could do is they could hand a large-ish reservation fee over to a sourcing agent whose terms of business say that should they change their mind, subject to an administration charge, the money will be refunded. So for argument's sake, an investor comes to me and says, Tina, you have a million pound development site available. Can I reserve it, please, for your £15,000 reservation fee? And I say, yes. They pay the fee to me. I don't ask any questions as to where that cash has come from. It goes from their bank account in Gargarland to my lovely clean HSBC bank account in Clitheroe, where we come from. And it is now sitting in my clean bank account. Two weeks later, they said that they'd done some due diligence and the site isn't quite right for them. They understand that we have a £750 fee for our time for dealing with the situation. Could they please have the rest of the cash refunded? But to this account, and they give me new account details at Barclays down the road. So I transfer the cash minus my fee to the new Barclays account. And Barclays don't question where the cash has come from because it's come from my nice, clean HSBC business account. I have then just literally cleaned and washed potentially dirty money. 
And when there's 100 billion of this going through our country in a year, you can understand why the National Crime Agency is slightly concerned. The other reason that they're concerned is because as estate agency type businesses, if we suspect that money laundering is taking place, we are supposed to inform the National Crime Agency by using what's known as a suspicious activity report or SAR. Now, in 2017-18, as an industry, the estate agency industry issued 0.12% of all of the SARs issued that year, which were in excess of 766,000. We issued 677 out of the estate agency sector for the whole country. So you can see why the National Crime Agency, the government and HMRC believe that we're not doing enough to help them clean it up. Now, since June 2017, the legislation came in where even your high street estate agents, where I'm sure everyone has sold a house through, now when they um, have an offer received on a property that they have up for sale, they have to stop the purchase process and take that buyer through a due diligence process before they send it to the solicitor. Because what the authorities believe is if they can stop it at that stage in the process, because as an estate agency business or a sourcing and deal packaging business, we see the buyer and the seller before anybody else does. Because at the end of the day, they believe that to get a dodgy deal over the line, they will need a dodgy solicitor. So if we skip all of our responsibilities and don't do anything, and the buyer has a dodgy solicitor and pushes it through, we've allowed that to happen. It is in legislation that we must carry out due diligence. And what I wanted to talk to you about now is a little bit about that due diligence. Now I speak to a lot of investors and a lot of investors complain to me about the level of detail that I ask them for. But I ask them for the level of detail that I go into because it's a requirement. So as investors, if a sourcer asks you for this level of information, they have a pretty good knowledge of the anti-money laundering regulations. So I'd sit down and seriously listen to what they have to say and pay attention to them because they've at least gone to the trouble of learning what they need to learn. Now, the first thing that we are expected to do is to prove that the investor is who they say they are. Prove ID. And you can do that by your driving license or your passport, usually photographic. I find that to be the easiest way. And then secondly, that they live where they say they live. Again, you could use a UK driving license, but you can't use the UK driving license to prove ID, date of birth and address. You must have at least two separate pieces of identification to prove those. So you need to prove that they, they live where they say they live. And we, for that, we generally speaking use a utility bill less than three months old. But you are not supposed to use mobile phone bills. And it actually states in the legislation that you shouldn't be accepting copies, although most people do these days. Most of us couldn't tell the difference these days between a copy and a, an actual... How many of us actually get bank statements in reams now? We all see them online. Um, so it's one of those things. Three, that they have the funds to make the purchase. Bank statements, wherever the funds are held. Um, it's easier if it's already in the bank that they're actually going to spend it out of. If they're going to start moving it around, it makes your life a little bit more complicated, as you'll see from step four. 
because step four, this is the key, is the source of those funds. And for money laundering purposes, as you can imagine, that is the key. So how do we go about asking someone where their cash has come from? It's really easy, really. You just say, can you let me know where your cash has come from? It's as simple as that. It isn't rocket science. And most investors out there know that a solicitor and or finance agents will ask it anyway. The one thing that a lot of agents, uh, sorry, that a lot of investors are not used to is sourcing agents asking for this level of detail because most sources don't. So your source of funds, let's cover a, a couple of examples for source of funds for you. Someone has had a relative that's died and they've inherited some cash. Always, usually involved in that kind of process is a solicitor. And therefore, you could get proof from the solicitor that that person was left X amount of pounds as a gift, as a beneficiary of a will, and show the cash going from the solicitor's funds into that person's bank account by getting a copy of the bank statement. What you have to make sure of is that if that cash went into the bank 18 months ago, that, that is actually still the cash that they're going to be using. So you are expected to do some research but they don't expect you to be Sherlock Holmes. But you have to show that you have asked questions, that you have dug, that you have an audit trail, which is the key word for the source of funds. Because if all of this isn't in place from a sourcing perspective, each of those registrations that we talked about at the beginning, the ombudsman, data protection, money laundering, each time you're caught not registered, you can be fined up to £5,000 for each one of them. For breaches of regulations, the most serious being money laundering, it's up to 14 years imprisonment and unlimited fines. Now, in February this year, HMRC got a bee in their bonnet about the estate agency sector and went out doing unannounced visits. And if you're a sourcing agent or a, de uh, a deal packager and you're registered with HMRC for anti-money laundering, you'll know that you have to register as an estate agent. At this moment in time, there are no alternatives. And so when you register, you tick a box on the application form, which is quite long-winded and quite in-depth, that says that you have the necessary policies, procedures and risk assessments in place to assess your clients and that they are available to view upon request. 50 estate agents were visited in February this year, all across the UK and varying in size. In that one week, HMRC issued in excess of £300,000 worth of fines. Not because they discovered money laundering by any stretch of the imagination, but because they didn't find the processes, the policies, the risk assessments and the procedures in place to show that a process was in place, that the agents were actually following what they were supposed to be doing and meeting minimum standards. And I know from personal experience that HMRC do come out to sourcing agents because you are registered as an estate agent. And just because we don't have a shop front doesn't mean that they won't come out and knock on your front door and so you registered with us, you stated that you've got all of this in place, can we see it? And the fines that are being issued are eye-watering. 
Because the one thing that's interesting about HMRC is that it isn't government funded. It's funded by its memberships and fines. And this year they set up an estate agency division. They're gunning for us. And in my opinion, quite rightly, because we've been lagging behind for so long, it's untrue. And we really, really, as an industry, not just the sourcing sector, but also the estate agency sector, really, really must pull our socks up. So, proof of ID, proof that you live where you say you live, you have funds and you uh, to make the purchase and the source of funds. Is that everything for compliance? No. But it's just a snippet, just an introduction to the level of compliance that is actually required by sourcing agents. HMRC have recently been out again and they've issued um, similar sized fines in June stroke July this year. They are really gunning after us. So what I suggest that deal packages and property sources do is if they're registered with an ombudsman, they go. If I pull the page back down, I can't reach it, it's heavy. If they're registered with an ombudsman, they go to the ombudsman site. And if they haven't already done so, and I guarantee that the vast majority of sources won't have done, they download the code of conduct and they read that code of conduct and they're aware as to what the code of conduct stays, states and what is expected of them. That they go to the Information Commissioner's Office site and they download the guide on GDPR and the principles of GDPR and they understand what they are responsible for, how they should be assessing their business because they should be sitting down and assessing their business for Information Commissioner's Office for General Data Protection Regulations. They should be looking at what data they're gathering. Is the data that they're gathering sufficient to provide the service and meet minimum standards of the legislation that governs us? Are they keeping it safely? How can the data owner access that data if they request? What are their policies on deletion? and HMRC. If you Google anti-money laundering HMRC estate agency guide, it's either 51 or 57 pages. I can't remember exactly which it is, but they've recently updated it. The interesting thing about HMRC is they update them, but they don't highlight where they've updated it. So you have to read the whole thing and try to work out what they've changed. Whereas when ICO do it, they give you the old copy, the new copy, and the italic or highlight where the changes are, which is much easier for you to be able to read and understand. HMRC aren't that easy to work with, shall we say? And of course, there's the cost. £1,200 as a basic for your registrations. Ongoing, um, probably around the eight or £900, dependent on the level of insurance. And then you've got your policies, your procedures, your risk assessments, data capture forms and everything else that you have to put in place. So this isn't going to happen overnight unless you're superhuman. As far as sources are concerned, this has to be in place before you trade a deal, before you start your business. I know of a sourcing agent who has not done a deal to date because they bought a development site, which they're doing personally. So they're fully compliant, but they haven't done a deal to date. But HMRC turned up on their doorstep, fortunately for them, 
they ticked all of the boxes or they would have been heavily fined. These guys are coming out. So from a sourcing perspective, please ensure that you Google search legislation regulation for sources, for estate agents. And as far as investors are concerned, working with sourcing agents, please check that they have insurance and ask for proof. Please check that they are registered with an ombudsman and that you check the registration number that you're given on the appropriate site. Check the registration number that you're given for registration with Information Commissioner's Office and Data Protection, and the same with HMRC and anti-money laundering. And that is the basics of sourcing compliance from a sourcing perspective and also an investor perspective. So thank you very much for listening, everyone. I hope you got something from it. And I hope that we will meet again at some stage and have a chat. Thank you. Thanks very much, Tina. That was, that was very useful, very um, informative. Um, so thanks so much for speaking for us today. If anyone does uh, want to reach out, any of the audience, any of the listeners to the podcast, how might they um, find you and contact you? I have a Facebook group, which is purely for property sourcing compliance, which is property sourcing compliance support. It's free to join. Lots of videos, free content in there to help and support you. My contact number is 01254 721976. That's the office number. Or you can contact me directly via email at tina at spsuk.co.uk. Awesome. Round of applause to Tina. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone, and here's to your success in service accommodation. Thanks for listening to the Service Accommodation Property Podcast. Why not also check out my website, www.propertysoldier.co.uk, where you can learn more about property and serviced accommodation.